Peter Bentley is a British children's writer, best known for his rhyming picture books, including The Great Dog Bottom Swap, The Shark in the Dark, and Octopus Shocktopus with illustrator Stephen Lenton. Cats Ahoy, his first picture book with Jim Field, won the Roald Dahl Funny Prize in 2011, and King Jack and the Dragon with Helen Oxenbury was named as an American Library Association Notable Book of the Year. Peter joined Nicky Gamble in the Reading Corner recently to talk about his new book, a reworking of the Emperor's New Clothes called The King's Birthday Suit. And he began by reading from the book. Are you all sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. The King's Birthday Suit. King Albert Horatio Otto III had so many clothes it was simply absurd. He had outfits for yoga and stroking his cat. He never ate cheese without changing his hat. For every event, he would wear something new. He even changed outfits to go to the loo. It'll soon be my birthday, the king said one day. There'll be royalty coming from far, far away. I'll need a new suit, the best there can be. Who will design a new outfit for me? Fashion designers turned up in their droves, bringing the king all their latest new clothes. But nothing his majesty tried was quite right. This cloth is too scratchy and simply too bright. This jacket's not comfy, it just doesn't fit. Too stripy and spotty. I look a right twit. Along came two rascals, McTavish and Mitch, who'd cooked up a story to make themselves rich. We'll make you a suit of the finest cloth ever which can only be seen by the wise and the clever. The king said, fantastic, that's just what I need. I'll make sure you're paid very highly indeed. Then Mitch and McTavish pretended to weave the fabulous fabric from morning till eve. Clackety, clickety, clickety, clack, working their weaving loom forward and back. Clickety, clackety, clackety, click. Nobody guessed it was all a big trick. Oh, that cloth's going to come unravelling before we get to the end of the story. And as, as we do listen to you read, it's interesting. We'll get the chance to explore this as we uh, go through the uh, conversation. But not all rhyming stories are the same. And that one reminded me very much as though it was in the vein of somebody like Hilaire Belloc, you know, those kind of cautionary tales of the 1930s. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a slightly more, I wouldn't say literary style, but a slightly more complicated language than uh, some rhyming stories might be. It's intentionally slightly arch and ironic or sardonic, the whole tone of it, because, of course, the whole thing is satirical, really. So I've, I've particularly gone for that style to suit that story, um, which, which is kind of, it's not exactly Anderson-esque because he doesn't write in rhyme, but I think it's the sort of spirit he writes in when he's writing something like that, where you know from the very beginning that uh, this king is a bit of an ass, essentially. Hmm. And it's probably not going to end well for him. So that's interesting. You knew you had the story in a sense that you were working with. I know you've made a few little tweaks to it, which we can talk about. 
but usually when you're writing a rhyming story, do you have to write the story and then you put it into rhyme? Or does it just come tumbling out as rhyme? <laughs> um, well, it doesn't always come tumbling out. I, I tend to write in rhyme from the outset. I mean, if I have an idea, quite often it'll kind of be the whole story in a vague shape. I mean, I know J.K. Rowling said that she thought of the entire plot of all seven Harry Potter books um, in one go. She knew how it was going to end. It's not quite as uh, dramatic as that. But if you have an idea, it, it, it fires you up because you think, oh, yes, I can see where that's going to go. And I can see roughly how that might end and how that might be funny or whatever. So then I will start to write it in verse. Yeah. Yeah. From the outset on on paper, not on a laptop generally. As I always say to school children, you write on paper, then you make lots of crossings out, but you can always find them again if you just put a line through something. If you're Mm -hmm. typing, you can never find what you've written before. So I do compose in rhyme to start with, but often it's like, you know, I can spend a morning thinking of four lines. Mm -hmm. That's quite a good morning because four lines is often a whole spread and there's only 12 spreads. (laughs) That's pretty good going. Do you know, it's interesting, uh, you're talking about writing it. I had an image of you walking around your house, pacing it out, dum-diddy-dum-diddy-dum. That does happen sometimes, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, walking is quite good. I mean, if if I go out to write, I mean, the last 18 months have been an exception. But in normal times, if I go out to write, like to a cafe or something, and actually walking to the cafe is is part of the process because it kind of gets you into a rhythm. Mm-hmm. And also, if you go walking somewhere and it's you know there's not many people around, I can I can talk to myself. <laughs> I can try things out loud, which is always which you have to do really. <laughs> yeah, you can tell when it hasn't been done. I can tell you. Mm-hmm. So not not in your stories. I hasten to add. Um, we're talking about rhyming story, but I wonder whether the rhythm is as important, if not even more important, actually, than the rhyme. Well, actually, I just said this the other week to somebody. That actually, you get the rhythm and the rhyme can look after itself. The rhyme is a question of just matching word sounds up. And obviously, you've got to find the right words but um, and the right sounds, but you've got to get the rhythm right. The rhythm and the scansion, that, that's what makes it a pleasure to read aloud. Because if, if the scansion is bad, then people will keep stumbling over the lines and, and it could be unsatisfactory. I mean, in, in terms of thinking of rhymes for a particular word, I will do a word list. I'll do put the word at the top of the list and I'll go through the alphabet, A to Z, try to find words that rhyme with that word. And sometimes that will take me off in a different direction because I'll think I'll come across a word I hadn't thought of, which also gives me an idea I hadn't thought of. On other occasions, I, I won't find a suitable rhyme at all, not one that I can use without really, really forcing it. So in that case, I'll just change the word and start again. You know, there's so many, English has got so many words in it. You'll always find two that rhyme if you think about it or phrases. So you, you have to be a little bit systematic. I, I find that helps. Yeah. I mean, you can even resort to those rhyming dictionaries online. Just be aware that they're not always in the dialect you might be working in. British rhymes aren't always the same as American rhymes. I, I try and find rhymes that work in all varieties of English. But scansion rhythm is the thing that is the motor, really. It's the motor of forward movement and development. It's the engine, if you like, of the story. Fascinating. I just want to come back to a point that you said that you try to get it to work so that it will work in all the dialects of English. So you want to feel happy that, you know, in 
Edinburgh that this story is going to read as well as it will read in London, as well as it will read in Cornwall. That must be quite a challenge. Well, it's uh, maybe it's, it's not as daunting as you think. I mean, I, for example, the example I tend to quote when I, when I say that is that I, I would never rhyme scarf with giraffe. Scarf is how I pronounce it. Scarf is how you say it in Scotland. <laughs> or scarf in the West Country. And giraffe is giraffe or giraffe or giraffe, you know. So, to, so in many parts of, of the English-speaking world, they don't really rhyme those two words. So if a book is mainly being sold in England, then maybe you can get away with it. Well, this is just my personal choice, really. But it's, it's actually not that difficult. As I say, I mean, England has got lots and lots of words. You know, it's got more words than any other language, more, really, in general use. Something like 100,000, which is phenomenal, really. And you're free to write what you like as a writer. So just you can play around and find the right words. Just just work at it, really. So you've told us really about the pitfalls to try and avoid. You've talked about how important it is to you that the stories read aloud well. When you're writing, are there things that you put in there to help a reader so that they don't just hammer out the meter? Because as I was listening to you read, the meter's running underneath the story, but actually you're doing something else as you read that doesn't go counter to it, but doesn't bang it out. <laughs> well, I suppose that's just you know, it's the way you learn to read verse, isn't it, really? I don't know if that gets taught so much these days in schools, but what I try to, to do as much as possible is follow the natural rhythms of speech, even if I'm following a metrical pattern, if you like, you know, ti dum di dum di dum for example, or something iambic like that, which is the basic rhythm of English. So I try and make it so that the lines can be read as naturally as possible and such that the stresses are as unambiguous as possible. So they, they would tend to fall where people would naturally want to say them. Beyond that, you know, it's just me being theatrical, putting on accents and things, <laughs> which I like to do. But I like to think that people could read it just in a, a normal voice and it would still work mm. without having to put, you know, bells and whistles on it. Mm. Good yeah. punctuation helps. It does. Well, and it's Punctuation it... is, is quite important. More, Yeah, it's very important, actually. Yes. Mm. And also typography is important. Because I will say sometimes to a designer, uh, can you put that in bold or italics or make it slightly bigger so people know that that's the word that has to be stressed? Because mm. otherwise it can be read two or three ways. Mm. And two of those ways will make them stumble because it, doesn't, it won't work with the scansion. It's a real art and you make it look so easy, as I keep saying, Um, and I know it isn't. Uh, Your story starts, The King's Birthday Suit, we're going to get into the pages of this book in a moment, but it starts with the king's name, King (laughs) Albert Horatio Otto III. That's a little bit like Belloc as well. He often starts with the name of a character. And then I was looking at some of your other books, uh, is it Paul Witch, Rich Witch? Rich Witch, Paul Witch, yes. Yeah. Uh, and we have a princess in there who's called Anna Lucinda Cecilia Grace. And I was thinking about other writers that do this, you know, Lauren Child, uh, Hubert Horatio Bartle Bobton Trent, or A.A. A. Milne. You know the one I'm going to say, don't you? 
James Morrison Morrison, Weatherby George Dupree. Dupree. Yes. Yes. So I came up with a name <laughs> for the start of my rhyming story. Fantastic. And I wondered what kind of character it was and what my second line might be for my story. So I don't know if you'll think it's a good name, Peter, but it's Frederick Halibut Macintosh Bones. Frederick Halibut Macintosh Bones sounds to me as if it might be a cat. Oh, I hope I didn't pinch it from your story. No, I'll tell you what, I have got a story coming up with a character called Perlock Jones. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think that's a fantastic name, by the way, and I might well pinch it unless you tell me now I'm not allowed to. I think because of the fish... That's why I thought it might be a cat. Frederick Halibut Macintosh Bones. I think the association with fish and bones might make me think it was a pirate, possibly. I have just bit. been reading your Cats Ahoy. Do you think I might have been influenced by the flavour of that story? <laughs> yeah, you never know. You never know. That's right. Um, he would have to be a kind of sort of gentleman pirate, I think, with a name like that. There's something about Frederick which sounds a little bit pompous, doesn't it? So if you, if, if you want to give a character that edge of pomposity, you can do it through the name. Or, mm. you know, you could, it's that old Dickensian thing of kind of creating the character through the name, which, mm. of course, is, doesn't really work in real life because they're only, you're only babies when you get your names. You know, so, <laughs> well, maybe people, people grow into their names. I think some people might do. Yeah, there is this theory of determinism to do with your name, isn't there? Alexander Boris to Peffel. I mean, what kind of person would that grow up to be? Who knows? Who Who knows? knows? (laughs) Anyway, I had fun doing that. And then as I was looking at first lines, I came across another book of yours that um, Octopus, Shoctopus. Oh, yeah. By contrast, starts very simply with um, one day we found an octopus had come to live on top of us. So I thought I'd try that as well and see if you could give me a second line. Okay. One day we found a crocodile. It winked at us and gave a smile. Yeah, <laughs> it works. <laughs> it works. There was a particular reason that line occurred to me. One day we found an octopus had landed right on top of us. I think that's what the first couplet that came to mind. And uh, I did, decided to write it in a slightly more abrupt rhyme scheme or scansion, if you like, um, just because of that abrupt opening. Because the children were asking me yesterday, I, re- I read it in this, this primary school yesterday, and they were saying, where does the octopus come from? I said, um, I don't know. Where do you think? And uh, essentially, if I got into where the octopus came from, I wouldn't have room to write the rest of the story. So it just arrives. You can decide where it comes from, if you like. Mm-hmm. And then they started firing ideas. Oh, maybe it came from outer space. Maybe it flew out of the sea. I said, maybe. Who knows? You can write that story yourselves, you know. But I wanted something that was quite sort of jump, 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 because mm. it starts off like, yeah, matter of fact, an octopus lands on your house. We're not going to explain why. It just happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Absolutely lovely. Coming back to the king's birthday suit for a moment, though, you've been really lucky in some ways as well to work with some fantastic illustrators, obviously Jim Field on Cats Ahoy, Ben Court, I think you've worked with. Uh, David um, Roberts. Dark, David Roberts, yes. Um, and for this book, Claire Powell, what an amazing job she's done. Claire has done a completely stunning job, actually. I mean, it is, it's regal, really, through and through this book. 
And it's all about clothes, essentially, and about deception and about sort of seeing is not believing or believing is not seeing kind of thing. And she works all those themes into her amazing pictures. You know, there's a, there's a bed in it which has two eyes that seems to be looking at everything that's going on. And then there's the whole subplot of the king's cat. The king's cat is never mentioned in the text, but Claire writes this whole subplot of the cat weaving in and out and expressing a sort of chorus-like opinion through its expressions mm. and occasionally joining in the dressing up as well, which is amazing, really. And you get a sense, I mean, that she loves fashion, that the clothes that he wears are just... She just clearly had so much fun with this book. She's had terrific fun with it. It's quite obvious, isn't it? I mean, I I, I think some of my favourite scenes are the, the crowd scenes. But, you know, I also love the scenes of the deceptive weavers, the tricksters sort of uh, weaving their loom sort of, you know, with their expressions on their faces. Uh, but there's, there's so much in it. Everything's echoes of... Uh, it's, well, it's quite sculptural, really. A lot of the composition is quite sculptural, really sort of sweeps across a whole spread. Mm. And she also gets in a couple of very cheeky little portraits of, of genuine fashion designers in the, in the scene where, where they all arrive at the palace. She's had a ride of, a, of, a, of, a, of fun with it. And uh, I'm so pleased that uh, the story has been enhanced. You know, illustrators add luster to a story and she's done that in, in spades, really. I mean, we've talked about your rhyming and rhythmic text but there's great wit in this story too. I'd love to talk about the end papers. You know, we've got the, there's a lot about newspapers in here, isn't there? Those characters that are reading newspapers and the story is bookended by these two sets of end papers that tell different stories, really. Tell us about this. Well, my very first writing job was it was in journalism I, I i got a job as a trainee journalist in trade journalism actually financial journalism as it turned out but uh that journalistic style of writing and occasionally i was i was writing headlines and it just occurred to me i think one of these headlines occurred to me like i think suits you sire or that fantastic fabric or king i just thought it'd be quite fun to have a few newspaper headlines front and back Mm. And, and the, the, the in-house team also came up with a couple of them as well. So uh, we, we all had a bit of fun doing that. Mm. <laughs> there are before and after headlines as well. Mm. But it, it also adds to the satirical nature of the story about, you know, how royalty are press fodder, essentially. And, you know, what, uh, today's happy story is tomorrow's sort of intrusive, moronic story. Mm. And, you know, it's the, the press are happy, whatever they do, really, because they're just, they're just good value. Mm. I'm just going to read some of this. We told you so, S-E-W. Fabricated <laughs> fabric was a tissue of lies. <laughs> <laughs> and I also loved the no page numbers in here, but I'm looking at um, a double page spread that's got lots of pink balloons on it and green balloons and yellow balloons. And this is where the courtiers are telling the king about the cloth that they've seen. Or rather haven't seen. Or haven't seen. And then there's these parentheses. Could you just read us that bit? Because it is just so delightful. Okay, well, the context is, of course, everyone knows the story, that the king sends his ministers to see this 
fabulous fabric and they of course there's nothing to see but they don't want to admit their uh that they can't see it because that would mean admitting that they're stupid so they said to the king that cloth sir oh my we've seen nothing like it which wasn't a lie we just can't describe it they said which was true it's quite unbelievable that was true too and again, you know, we talked earlier about the clues that you can give the reader about how to read that aloud. And the parentheses just does that. Because if you if, if you are reading quickly without really thinking about what you're reading. Yeah, you have to kind the of irony in that. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that's right. I mean, it's quite sophisticated, I suppose, in terms of who it's aimed at. I mean, it's probably year, year two rather than reception, if you like. Mm. one or two but yes the the punctuation there it, it creates the pause the necessary pause to have that sort of parenthesis at mm. the end lovely uh, really nicely done one of the other things that i really appreciate about this story and lots of your other stories is how they lend themselves to performance <laughs> in a classroom i could see myself being the narrator and as the teacher narrating most of the story and the children coming in with the dialogue and I certainly used to do that with a colleague of mine and one of your other books which is out in a new edition called Farmer Clegg's Night Out. I've had great fun performing that in the classroom. (laughs) Oh that's great yeah Uh, well the more performance the better really. I mean Cats Ahoy, my wife's a drama teacher and we uh, we did that as a little play uh, when it first came out in various places, even even uh, a little theatre at one point. And it's, oh. it's quite short, but we, you get, you get uh, lots of cat pirates. Lots of children can be cat pirates and dogs and, you know, have a bit of fun with it, really. <laughs> mm. I think I probably won't act out Dog Bottom Swap, but I'm sure some people will enjoy acting that one out. <laughs> yeah, I've never done, never done that one as an acting out thing in school, I have to say. <laughs> well, you've got another book coming out, um this year as well in August called I Am Dog and I was struck how different that was in the way that it was written the voice and the rhyming pattern perhaps you could tell us a bit about that yes well I wanted to write the story as a dog's eye view of a dog's life so I wrote it in this fairly quite simple style like without using um, articles quite often I am dog dog is me dog is what I love to be kind of thing and it's it's very matter of fact and I think it's all in the present tense isn't it I think it is yeah hopefully it's it's funny as well and Chris Chatterton who's done the pictures is is a wonderful illustrator and that's uh, he's doing another one called I am cat which is a companion piece and I think the idea is just to get inside because dogs are really quite simple happy creatures really you know, they're easily satisfied. So I didn't want the language or the rhythm or the rhyme to be too too complicated. Just mm. some matter of fact, you know, happy dog, happy dog head, really. Mm. It's about a dog's life, isn't it? <laughs> it's about a dog's life. In fact, that's how it ends. It's a dog's life. I am dog. It's the last, yeah. the final line. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's an irony in that, of course, and that the dog's life is very is very comfortable and happy. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, after he's happily created chaos throughout the house. Do you know, Peter? It's a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me in the reading corner today, and especially for you know writing books that bring such smiles to our faces. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, and uh, all I can say is happy reading. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.